You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Peace be with you. Welcome to Sojourn. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. It's my joy and privilege uh, to open God's word with you this morning. Um, And if you're a guest, I'll just reiterate the, uh, the welcome that Cole gave you. And highly encourage you to take any one of those steps to connecting to uh, the community here. Um, we'd love to, to get to know you. And so uh, if there are any questions that were unaddressed, uh, you can again either fill out that connect card or you can come and talk to myself or one of our staff or members uh, in the gallery at the conclusion of the gathering. Um, with that said, uh, let's jump right in this morning. Um, like Cole mentioned earlier, we're walking through uh, a five-week sermon series on the five uh, sort of basic theological principles of uh, the Protestant Reformation in Europe that celebrates its 500th anniversary this year. Um, and so far we've dis- discussed sola scriptura, or scripture alone, and sola gratia, or grace alone. Um, these principles were principles that bubbled to the surface um, because there were questions in the church that were being asked, right? Questions that ultimately were causing quite a bit of tension. One being a question of authority. Where is it that ultimate authority lies? Is it in the the church structure, the popes, the priests, um, and everything in between? Or is it in God's word? And and obviously the Reformation response to that question was scripture alone. And then of course last week we talked about this question that also bubbled up to the surface, which is how is it that salvation has been procured for us? How is it that salvation happens? What is the method? Um, And of course, the Reformation response to that question was by grace alone. Um, And this morning, uh, there's another another point of debate that was happening in the church at the time. And it it was a debate around the question of how do we obtain grace, right? So if, if salvation comes to us by grace alone, how is it that we obtain that grace? According to the Council of Trent, which was the Roman church's response to the Reformation, grace was obtained, at least in part, by our good works. Here's some direct quotes from the Council of Trent. It says this, if anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of God in justification, let him be anathema, or let him be accursed. Here's another quote. If anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also not increased before God by good works, but that those works are merely fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of its increase, Let him be anathema, or let him be cursed. Now, there's a lot of big words in those sentences, but essentially what the Roman church is saying in this statement is that while salvation might might have been affected by grace, meaning that God showed his grace for us in the person and work of Jesus, that we actually get access to that grace, and we keep access to that grace through our good works. So to get access to the salvation provided by Jesus and to keep access to the salvation provided by Jesus, we must supplement that grace with our good works. 
And again, those words were written in response to the reformers who stated clearly that access to grace alone is given to us by faith alone, or sola fide, so that both God's grace and the faith with which we gain access to God's grace are both the gift of God to us. And they got this from Ephesians chapter 2, right? It is by grace we have been saved through faith, not of works, so that none can boast. It is the gift of God. And when Paul writes that in Ephesians 2, the gift of God is in reference to both the grace extended to us in the work of Jesus and the faith that we have in order to believe in the work of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Let's pray and we'll jump into Romans 4. Father, uh, thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together as your people, and we're grateful, Father, that as we gather this morning, God, while there are many things in us and in one another that would tempt us to compare ourselves to one another, the only merit that we bring this morning is the merit of your son, Jesus, the record of the righteousness, the goodness of Jesus that we have received from you as a gift. And so God, it's not about how good or how bad this last week was. Lord, we enter into this moment and find in your word assurance that if we have placed our faith in Jesus, that if we trust you, then we are made right, holy and completely before your eyes. And so God, we rejoice in that and we celebrate that this morning and we ask, Lord, that as we gaze upon that beautiful new reality in Jesus, Lord, that you would change our hearts by your spirit so that we might live as those who have been saved, not only by grace alone, but through faith alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, I've said the same thing every week, and I'm going to say it again. The first thing that we want to do each week as we unpack these solas is to first go to God's Word. And there's two reasons for that. The first week of this series, we talked about God's Word being our ultimate authority. And so if the Word of God is the ultimate authority in our lives, then we want to go to that Word of God in order to be told what is true, right? But then second of all, I want to clearly show to us that these theological principles that bubbled up in this time of upheaval in the history of the church are ultimately biblical principles. And so the Reformation was less about innovation so much as a return to the foundation, which is God's Word. And so with that said, let's read. And I'm, only, I'm just going to read one verse for right now. We're going to read verse 1 of chapter 5. It says this, Therefore, and of course this is, That therefore is said in light of everything that we read just a moment ago. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there's a reason we're in Romans, and if you want to learn more about faith alone, then you should really just read the whole book of Romans. We could have picked probably any portion of scripture from this letter that Paul writes and had a frank and 
and, and quite clear discussion about this idea of God's grace being given to us through faith alone. In fact, Martin Luther said of this letter written to the church in Rome that it would benefit all of us in the church if we were to simply memorize it line for line and recite it to ourselves daily. Challenge accepted, right? And so it's, it's, it's hard to just jump in somewhere, but there's a few reasons that we chose chapter 4 and, of course, verse 1 in particular. There's, there's two things that Paul is telling us, in, not only in this verse alone, but really in this whole portion of the letter to the Romans. And the first is this. The first is that we have been justified by faith. Now, the word justified, depending on how long you've, you've been around church folk or church people, may or may not be familiar, but it's really pretty simple. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified is to be made right before God. When we are justified, when we are made right in God's eyes, it is as if we never sinned. It is as if our lives, rather than being filled with sin, were only filled with good. The good that God's perfection demands. And so when Paul tells us that we're justified by faith, he's telling us that we've been made right in God's eyes, that when God looks at us, he sees us as wholly pleasing, wholly acceptable, and that we've been made justified, that we've been justified by faith. And so what we'll notice right there in sort of our summary statement, this one sentence from really a full book that is expounding upon this, what we'll notice is that there is no mention whatsoever of our works being able to earn, obtain, or sustain God's grace in our lives, right? We can't earn God's grace we can't obtain it by taking it, nor can we sustain it, keep it going in our lives. There's no mention of our works or our abilities in this portion of Scripture. And so it becomes quite clear to us, even just from this lone verse, that we get access to and the benefits of Jesus, Jesus' perfect life, Jesus' sinner's death, and Jesus' victorious resurrection by faith alone. All of those things that belong to Jesus, we, all, of, all of those things that God has expressed to us in His grace, in Jesus, His, His perfect life, His sinner's death, His victorious resurrection, all of that. we get access to and we keep hold of by faith alone. The second thing we see in here is that not only have we been justified by faith, but that because we've been justified by faith or because we've been made right by faith, we also now have peace with God. Because when we place our faith in Jesus, it's as if we've never sinned, we have peace with God. So God can once again welcome us into his holy presence because of the stains of our sins being wiped away, being cleaned, being replaced by the righteousness, the rightness of Jesus. 
And so we've been justified by faith and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those things in and of themselves are astounding. But there's something even more astounding that we might easily miss if we read this too quickly. Notice the tense of the verb at the beginning of the verse, right? Therefore, since we have been justified, we have been justified. What does that mean? That means that justification, or as we've defined justification, being made right in God's eyes, has happened. It's a thing that happened. It's in the past for us. That if we have faith in Jesus, if we are Christians in the room this morning, then when we first opened our eyes to God's grace to us in Jesus, in that moment, we were declared right before God once and for all. That you are right now justified, made right before him. That right now, in God's eyes, you lack nothing. Now, just like last week and the week before, we could easily close the book, go home right now. Which might sound again great to some of us. Everybody's waiting for me to cut off the sermon at 13 minutes and 14 seconds. But we're not going to do that because I want us to see that this verse isn't an isolated biblical concept, but rather a theme that's woven throughout the whole Bible. And that's one of the reasons we jumped in this morning to Romans in chapter 4, because it's going to tell us about this promise that we are now part of, assimilated into by faith that actually existed before Jesus, that this promise that we're a part of predates Jesus coming to us in the flesh. And this is what it says in verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that Abraham would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs of the world, faith is null and God's promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of Abraham's offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God, uh, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as God had promised. So shall your offspring be. Abraham did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, from Genesis 15, counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for 
Abraham's sake alone, but for us also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. There's a lot in there and a lot that we're ultimately not going to have time to cover. But I think often when we read the Bible, we tend to think that God changed somewhere between the Old Testament, those books written before Jesus came, and the New Testament, those books written after Jesus came. That maybe God, after trying out this whole law thing, decided to try grace and faith instead because we couldn't help but keep blowing it. But the reality that's presented to us here in Romans chapter 4 is that in God's promise to Abraham, who, who lived in the Old Testament from the old days before Jesus, God has always acted consistently towards his people. That he's never expected anything different from anyone, whether it was before Jesus or even now, as you and I are privileged to sit after Jesus. And here's what I mean. God has always operated through the method of grace, which is what we talked about last week. And he's only ever asked that his people trust him, that they operate towards him in faith. In fact, um, we could sum up the entire Bible in that one single phrase, right? In the Bible, God is saying to you and he is saying to me, trust me. And so if we wanted to boil this whole story down into just a couple of sentences, this is essentially what happens. Paul tells us here in Romans 4, starting in verse 13, that Abraham was right in God's sight because when God said, trust me, Abraham said, okay. And likewise, Paul says that you and I now in Christ, God is saying to us in Jesus, trust me, and all we have to do is say, okay. That's why he ends in verse 22 by saying that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for us also, because our faith will be counted to us as righteousness as we believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. And so when God, through his son Jesus, invites us into his grace, we say, okay, we are justified in that moment. This happened to Abraham too, right? The quotes from Genesis 15, before ever doing anything of consequence, Abraham was called righteous. This is before he ever has Isaac. This is before he ever obeys God and takes Isaac to the top of the mountain to sacrifice him to God according to God's own request, right? This is before Abraham dutifully leaves his home and to wander in the desert and follow God, right? Before he does any of those things, God says to him, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham says, okay. And so to make God's promises to us, especially God's grace to us, through faith, 
to make that promise conditional on obedience to the law, which was not even hinted at when the promise was given, would nullify the whole promise, is what, is what Paul says here. And so, brothers and sisters, righteousness has always come by faith to those who live by faith. And we see this principle again in the life of King David, who in, in one instance broke three of the Ten Commandments outright as he coveted after Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, as he committed adultery with her and then murdered her husband. And what we can know is if, if, if you read the Old Testament sacrificial system, there is no provision in that sacrificial system for a sin of this magnitude and that was premeditated in this way. Like David planned this out. We don't have the details to go into the whole story, the time to go into the details of the whole story. But essentially, David in that moment is hopeless, which is why he writes this psalm in Psalm 51. He says, you do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. He says, look, if if there was a provision in your sacrificial system that would make this right, I would do it. But there's not. And so I can't. And then he says these lines. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And so David's case was hopeless. There was nothing that he could do but cast himself on God's mercy. And if we examine the remainder of the psalm to discover the ground on which he was acquitted, It appears that he simply acknowledged his guilt and cast himself in faith upon the mercy of God. And Paul, earlier in Romans, calls David blessed. Earlier in chapter 4, he calls David blessed. And David himself calls himself blessed twice because when there was no work that could possibly atone for his sins, he was forgiven on faith alone. And so the principle of faith alone was mightily established and illustrated in the life of Israel's greatest king, someone that the Bible records as being a man after God's own heart, and also in the life of Israel's greatest patriarch, their their father, right? The father of us all, Abraham. And so it was faith alone for Abraham, faith alone for David, faith alone for the Gentiles here in Romans 4. And it's faith alone before, during, and after the law. And so it has always been faith alone in God's economy. In fact, faith alone is so important that Luther said, this doctrine of faith alone is the head and the cornerstone. It alone begets or births, nourishes, builds preserves, defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. And so, brothers and sisters, when we compromise on this doctrine, we compromise a lot, right? According to Luther's words, we miss the doctrine by which the church is born, meaning if salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, is not at the core of our message then we end up not taking hold of God's promises. We end up creating a religion that is ultimately familiar 
in that it is just like every other religion. It is grace alone through works. Luther would also contend that when we compromise, we miss the doctrine by which the church is nourished and built, meaning if salvation is by grace through works, we are starved of God and we build something different than what God intended to build through Jesus. He would contend that when we compromise, we miss the doctrine by which the church is preserved and defended. And so if salvation is by grace through works, then when we fail to be good, the church is vulnerable to our weaknesses. Meaning the church is only as good as we are, and the church is only as safe as we can keep it, instead of being as good as God in Christ is, and as safe as He's promised to keep it. But that's not all, and all of that's outside of us, right? So yes, it's, yes, it's important as we think about the, the gospel and keeping it pure. It's important as we think about the health of the church and what we, need to be, what, what we need to believe in order to actually be God's church, right? What we need to understand about what God has done on our behalf and how little, meaning nothing, we've contributed to that goodness. But I think there's a deeper personal reality that that's at stake when we compromise on this doctrine of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And, and it's, it's very simple. That's this. We live afraid. When we compromise on salvation by grace alone through faith alone, we live afraid. Let me explain. There's a show, um, and it's, I don't know, I hesitate whether I should recommend it or not. Um, but there's a show called The Good Place. And if you've seen it, um, great. And if you haven't, let me explain sort of the premise. There's a show called The Good Place, and the premise of the show is that the main character, Eleanor Shellstrop, after dying, finds herself in the afterlife. And she's both relieved and she's surprised that she's made it into the good place, right? As opposed to the bad place. But we come to find out as we learn a little bit more about Eleanor um, that she is there by mistake. <laughs> that there was another woman that had her same name that lived this wonderfully gracious, loving, selfless, humble life uh, and that Essentially, through a clerical error, she has ended up in the good place instead of the other Eleanor Shellstrop. And so the rest of the show is essentially her trying to navigate this place, the good place that she's arrived in even after living a horrible life. And so she's, she's hiding in plain sight from the good place's architect, Michael, who serves as a uh, a, a God-type character, and his all-knowing assistant, Janet. <laughs> and, and this whole show is just her trying to be good in keeping with all of the good people that surround her in the good place. And so her whole life in the good place is spent in fear of being found out, in fear of being discovered, in fear of being outed that she doesn't belong here. She doesn't belong in the good place. 
And so what she does is she goes about trying to build up or display enough good in order to belong. And so she reads books on ethics and she takes ethics classes from a moral philosopher and she's right she's actively trying with all of her might to be the good person that the good place requires. And my contention this morning brothers and sisters is that when we compromise on salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus alone we're not so different from Eleanor. Most of us live our lives terrified we're going to be found out. Terrified that we're going to be found out either by God, Michael and Janet, by those around us, our neighbors in the good place, or even worse, by ourselves. That we'll finally look in the mirror and instead of making more excuses, we'll finally just recognize that we've run out that there aren't any more excuses, and that even the ones that we gave before weren't good. And so we're worried that if we're found out, we won't, not only will we not get to the good place, but if we do get to the good place, we'll get kicked out when we get there. And so we live fear-filled lives, always wondering if we've done enough, always wondering if we've built up enough or are displaying enough good works or have worked up enough faith. But here's the good news. This is what happens when we believe. You see, the good news of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is that just like Eleanor, we have arrived in the good place on the back of somebody else's reputation, on the back of somebody else's merit. But the difference is that when we get to that good place, the same thing will be true of literally everyone else. And so instead of hiding in fear, trying to keep up appearances, we'll all be celebrating with great joy and thanksgiving that we are in the good place. And we'll be free because there's nothing to be found out because all of our sin doesn't exist. Because Jesus took it on himself, bore the wrath that was deserved for it, took that sin and that shame to death with him, and then rose in victory, thereby conquering forever the sin, death, and hell that justly awaited us. And so if when we compromise on faith alone, we end up living in fear, when we believe in faith alone, we have assurance, we have confidence John Flavel said this, Happy were it if puzzled and perplexed Christians would turn their eyes from the defects that are in their obedience to the fullness and completeness of Christ's obedience and see themselves complete in Him. Happy would we be if puzzled and perplexed, we would turn our eyes from the defects that are in our obedience to the fullness and completeness of Christ's obedience and see ourselves complete in Him. Meaning we are as safe, we are as secure, we are as guaranteed of God's goodness to us as Christ is Himself safe, secure, 
and guaranteed of God's goodness. The inheritance of his father is our inheritance. The love of his father is our love to enjoy. The kindness of his father is our kindness to experience. The protection of his father is our protection to dwell in. The peace of his father is our peace to rest in. Brothers and sisters, that reality should produce in us the kind of confidence and assurance that simply cannot be explained apart from this strangest thing, God's salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Brothers and sisters, this morning we don't have to wonder. God is a promise-keeping God. And all he's asking us to do is trust him when he tells us that. This confidence, this assurance can and will carry the day every day if we let it. And brothers and sisters, this is what is truly meant by Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What does he mean when he's saying that? He, he means that we can live in light of this blessed assurance and endure anything because we know that God will deliver on his promise to save us by grace alone, through faith alone, and not on the basis of our performance. And so Paul says, look, you can put me on the top of the mountain or you can put me in the lowest valley. In all of that, I can do it all because I know that my God is a promise-keeping God and he's promised to not only start a good work in me that I need to finish, but he's promised to complete that good work that he started in me. And so as we, as we wrap up, there's a, there's a question I want to answer, and it's a question that I am frequently asked by both believer and non-believer. And it's the, it's the same question. It's this, Pastor, how do I know if I have faith? Or if I do have faith, how do I know that I have enough? And I want to request, Recall for us a story. There's, there's this interesting moment um, in, in the, the timeline of Jesus' death um, that, that almost for, for an instance takes the focus off Jesus just for one second, right? And Jesus, is, he's, been, he's been taken before Pilate. He's been falsely accused. Pilate says, whatever, I'm going to let them do whatever they want. I'm going to give them Barabbas or you, and, and they'll choose whether or not you live or die. And of course, they choose Jesus. Jesus is beaten, scourged, mocked, spit on, right? Placed upon, and I say placed, that's a very gentle description of what took place, but placed on a Roman cross. He's hanging on the cross, and he's hanging on that cross in between two thieves, two sinners. And... and one of the thieves looks, looks over and essentially says, look, I don't get it, but, but, I, but I trust you. And Jesus says to him, based on that, today, this day, the same day that we're sharing a cross, you will be with me in paradise. And what, what you'll notice is that, like, they... They don't last much longer after that interaction. 
And so there's no, there's no time for this thief to clarify his faith. And there's no time for this thief to accumulate more faith than he had in that moment. And yet Jesus says he'll be with him in paradise. And so clearly the thief was not saved on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of the faith that he exercised. But on the ground of the blood of Jesus. God's grace extended through Jesus. And so, my friends, the same is true this morning. It is not the intensity of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith that saves us. Jesus saves us, not our ability to muster our faith in Jesus. So even if during this very sermon you placed your trust in Jesus for the first time, you are as justified, as right before God, as the oldest saint in this room. And if you've been a Christian for many years, but it's been a tough season and your faith is rocked, you're not sure, but you're holding on for dear life, listen to me. The strength of your faith is not what saved you then and it's not what saves you now. Be free to rejoice in God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone this morning because you are a son, you are a daughter on account of the blood of Jesus. When your conscience or the enemy accuse you of having too little faith or too few good works, it is enough to say these words. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. And we can trust God when he says that that's enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Again, God, we're grateful to be gathered together. And we're grateful, God, to be gathered together knowing, Lord, that there is nothing that we need to muster this morning. And so if we came in feeling weak, we can be weak knowing that you're strong. If we came in doubting, we can doubt knowing that you preserve us. And we thank you, God, that we have obtained access into this grace by a faith that is also a gift from you. And so, God, being that faith is only something we can receive, not muster, we ask for more. God, would you meet us in our need? Lord, if we are weak and faithless this morning, God, make us strong and faith-filled by your grace and by the power of your Spirit. Lord, would the meal that we're about to partake in actually sustain us, God? Would it rem remind us, not only in our minds, but in our bodies, that you fill and you satisfy every need that we have? And may we celebrate this morning, God, with great joy and with great rejoicing, Father, that all that was required has already been done. We have but to receive it in faith. So help us, God. Be with us by your spirit. We love you. We thank you for all good things. In Jesus' name.